This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Good evening and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington and coming up on African News Tonight... We do not know of any functional economy which survives without banks playing their primary intermediation role of providing credits to businesses and households. That was Zimbabwe Banks and Allied Workers Union President Tawanda Mutami objecting to a ban on bank lending, part of the government's efforts to fight the economic downturn. Details coming up. Also, gunmen killed seven soldiers in an ambush in Nigeria's eastern state of Taraba. We have these stories and more ahead on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Aid workers for the International Rescue Committee appear to have been kidnapped in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo today. Journalist Jafar Al-Katanti in Goma received video from people who found an abandoned IRC vehicle on the road between Goma and the town of Asaki, about 27 kilometers away. The video shows considerable blood in the car. Al-Katanti contacted the regional IRC office for information, but was told the staff there could not comment unless they hear from any possible kidnappers or the missing workers. A police spokesman in Somalia says a suicide blast near Mogadishu Airport, which is the site of Sunday's presidential election, has wounded seven people. Other police sources say at least three people, including two security personnel, were killed. Mohamed Daisen reports from Mogadishu, Somalia. Somali police say at least seven people were wounded Wednesday when a suicide bomber blew himself up at a security checkpoint near Mogadishu's international airport. Somali police spokesman Abdi Fatah Adan Hassan told journalists the attack targeted a senior military general who was in an armed vehicle. He says the suicide bomber targeted vehicles backing at the checkpoint. Among them was General Garvey, says Hassan, but he survived. Seven people were injured in the attack, he says, and were transferred to Medina and Big Fair hospitals for treatment. Somali police source told VOA three people were killed in the attack, including two security personnel. Al-Qaeda-affiliated militant group Al-Shabaab claimed responsibility for the suicide bombing in their affiliated media. Al-Shabaab has been fighting against Somali government and African Union mission in Somalia since 2007. The attack comes four days ahead of Somalia's long-delayed presidential election on Sunday. Members of parliament will meet at a fortified airport compound to choose the next president. A record 39 candidates have registered for the election, including incumbent Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed, known as Famajo. Somali elections were delayed over a year because of disputes over the process and political wrangling. That so from Majo tried to extend his term in office. Mohamed Daisane for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. The United Nations says the worst drought 
to the to hit the Horn of Africa in decades has displaced hundreds of thousands of people and forced more than 600,000 children in Ethiopia to drop out of schools, hundreds of which have been closed. Aid groups say Save the Children has built centers near displacement camps for families who have lost everything to help reintegrate children into classrooms. Linda Giftosh reports from the town of Gode in the Somali region of Ethiopia. Foosball may just seem like a fun game, but the children playing are developing the skills and confidence they need to transition back to the classroom. More than 900,000 families have been displaced by the ongoing drought that has wiped out livelihoods for both herders and farmers. Ali Nur Mohammed works for Save the Children in Ethiopia. Due to the different psychological you know, trauma as a result of the displacement drought, Uh, death of a livestock, and then so we are, you know, we had to set up a place where children can come, at least play, and, and then have some fun, and then just forget what's going around their family, around their household. The effort has helped displace children like Ahmed Noor get excited about their education. Noor is a fifth-grade student at the Farbro Primary School outside Gode. He says he saw children his age learning, so he asked his parents to let him join. They brought him to the school, and now he's in grade five. Baseline education standards are poor in parts of Ethiopia, particularly in rural and remote communities. According to the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, over 60% of primary school students aren't achieving pass rates high enough to succeed at higher levels of education. That means only 54% of children make it past the 8th grade. UNICEF's Ethiopia country director, Gianfranco Rotagliano, says that's why reducing disruptions to schooling is crucial. If they lose uh, one or two school years, they will never go back to school. Because it's the issue, you know, when, when you are 14 and, and you have to sit with people that are 11 years old or 12, you don't... You don't feel comfortable and, you know, the family is poor, so they don't see really a reason uh, to push for that. One of the incentives being offered is feeding programs in schools. But Save the Children had to stop offering meals at the Farbaru Primary School late last year because funding was not renewed. With malnutrition rising because of drought, the organization tries to provide high-nutritious biscuits to these students to keep them from falling ill. In the meantime, they're trying other ways to urge parents to enroll their children. Shafi Omar Osman is the director of the Farbaru Primary School. He says they have shown parents other school children who have excelled in education and use such examples to raise awareness on the importance of education. The chance to get an education they wouldn't otherwise have in the remote rural communities can lead to a very different life from their pastoralist families. And that's what 16-year-old Noor hopes for. He says without school, he'd only be a pastoralist living in the jungle. He wants to learn and then teach to help his parents. With more families flooding into displacement camps every week, classrooms are increasingly overcrowded. Educators say a permanent school will need to be built for the long run. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Godet, Ethiopia. Gunmen ambushed an army patrol in Nigeria's eastern state of Taraba, killing at least seven soldiers. 
According to a Reuters report, the attack occurred last night when the troops came under heavy fire in the village of Tati. In addition to the dead, a brigadier general and his aide are missing. Army sources say a search and rescue operation is ongoing. There was no claim of responsibility for the attack. Taraba suffered two separate bombings last month that were claimed by Islamist state militants. For more than a decade, Nigeria has grappled with an Islamist insurgency that has targeted communities and security forces in northern parts of the country. Banks and businesses are slamming a ban on bank lending that's among a raft of new government measures aimed at stemming a tidal wave of economic challenges amid fears of civil unrest. Observers say something has to give amid runaway inflation and currency freefall. More on the story. The Zimbabwe dollar, which was reintroduced in an effort to curtail dependency on the U.S. dollar and other foreign currencies, is now trading at between 400 and 500 to the U.S. dollar with little sign of a bottom. Meanwhile, prices of consumer goods have been skyrocketing. Analysts say the U.S. dollar is a commodity which citizens and industry alike are chasing as a hedge against inflation run amok. President Emerson Mnangagwa, who normally leaves economic or monetary policy announcements, to the finance ministry justified the lending ban by claiming that the loans were finding their way to the parallel market, fueling speculative behavior which in turn is causing the local currency devaluation. Confederation of Zimbabwe Industries President Kurai Macheza says suspension of lending by banks is catastrophic as most companies rely on credit to run their activities. They say it may cause permanent damage to the economy. It will certainly choke uh, some of our businesses and the, the longer it takes some of our businesses may never be able to recover. We urge the authorities to move with the speed so that the businesses can operate as normal. The Zimbabwe National Chamber of Commerce, ZNCC, also issued a statement deploring the measures and calling for broad-based consultation. Officials from the banking sector have also gone against the measures. The Zimbabwe bankers and Allied Workers Union, Zibao President Tawanda Mkemi says lending is the bank's core business. To begin with, we do not know of any functional economy which survives without banks playing their primary intermediation role of providing credits to businesses and households. We are also very concerned about the potential loss of jobs. The Zimbabwe government is compelling retailers to utilize the interbank rate of 268 to the U.S. dollar in pricing their goods rather than the parallel market, which business says is more realistic. Analysts also say a 2% tax for U.S. dollar withdrawals above $1,000 and punitive 4% interbank transfers of U.S. dollars force the U.S. dollar transactions to leave the formal banking system. Critics say the government's actions are devoid of any self-responsibility for the situation. Economic analyst Gift Mgano says the government is fueling speculative behavior that is exploiting the differences between the central bank-controlled auction rate, the interbank rate, and the parallel market rate. Mugano adds that external shocks, such as the war in Ukraine, which is pressuring global food prices upward by 30%, were missing in the president's attribution of the reasons for the economic deluge. He notes, for example, that fuel, which is a critical component in the economic value chain in Zimbabwe, are compounded by fuel taxes of about 50%. He urged the government to provide some relief so prices recede and tamp down inflation.
This report for VOA News came from Blawayo, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwean farmers are looking to cash in on a global boom in medicinal cannabis. Growers are betting it will boost their fortunes after decades of economic decline. According to a Reuters report, Zimbabwe became one of the first in Africa to legalize the production of medicinal cannabis in 2018, hoping for a fresh income stream of badly needed export dollars and has already issued 57 licenses. With finance coming in from foreign companies like U.S.-based King Kong Organics, Zimbabwean farmers who have struggled to prosper in a weak economy are looking to branch out from traditional crops like tobacco. As Africa's biggest tobacco producer, Zimbabwean officials also recognize the need to diversify away from the addictive narcotic that is proven to be dangerous to the health of smokers and those around them. Cannabis is seen as less harmful alternative to cigarettes, and its cannabidiol CBD is widely accepted as a natural remedy. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says the country is poised to take advantage of the growing demand for platinum group metals. Analysts say Western sanctions against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine have forced mining investors to look to Africa. Vicky Stark reports from the Investing in Africa Mining Conference in Cape Town, South Africa. Mining analyst Peter Major says while it's horrible to say, the war in Ukraine is helping South Africa's economy a lot. We produce half of the world's palladium and we produce 75% of the world's platinum, and we produce about 90% of the world's rhodium. So because the world is restricting the platinum and palladium they get from Russia, it's squeezing the price up. So we're in a great position. South Africa is also a major coal producer, and he notes coal prices are on the rise. We were lucky to get $100 a ton for our coal. Now we're getting $300 a ton. And we're only exporting coal as much as we did in 1994 because our infrastructure is so bad. But at least we're getting three times the price than we would have been getting. Henk Langenoven is chief economist for the Minerals Council, the body that represents South Africa's mines. Langenoven says because of the sharp rise in oil prices, it is likely that some countries will move towards green energy even faster. This, he says, will further drive up demand for platinum and palladium used in the manufacture of zero-carbon-emitting power plants. He also downplayed South Africa's poor ranking in the 2021 Fraser Institute's Index, where the country was ranked as one of the 10 worst mining investment nations in the world. It doesn't reflect what we see financially. Financially, the companies are doing very well because of the commodity uh, windfall, if you want. Langenoven added that to properly take advantage of the mining opportunities, southern African countries need better transportation networks. But he says there has been a lot of progress. Between, say, Botswana, um, Namibia, Zambia and, and, and Zimbabwe and the Congo, there's a lot of work going on and investment going on to, to be able to come south or to come to the, to the west coast through Namibia or through Dar es Salaam. 
so a lot of that infrastructure is starting to to be put in place and and having an impact. You you see quite dramatic shifts in, in volumes of of tonnage going, for example, to Wintook. He said the speech delivered by Ramaphosa at the Investment Mining Conference demonstrates the South African government's commitment to fixing similar problems. One is electricity, of course. That we're not going to solve immediately. We're trying to, 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 to augment as fast as we can. The other one is the transport and logistics, the rail the harbour system. Uh, the, the, the third issue is trying to streamline and simplify the policy issues um, to, to, to get implementation faster. The presidents of Botswana and Zambia and the Prime Minister of Democratic Republic of Congo are among those attending the conference, which runs until Thursday. Also attending is the U.S. Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment, Jose Fernandez. Fernandez is the highest-ranking U.S. official ever to attend the conference. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Human rights organizations as well as the U.S. and the European Union have been urging Egypt to release thousands of political prisoners and open the political sphere so the opposition can participate in the political process. President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi recently called for an inclusive political dialogue, a call that comes amid regional and international challenges as well as economic social crisis. Mohamed Anwar el-Sadat, president of Reform and Development, a liberal party, and a member of the National Council for Human Rights in Egypt, discussed this move with VOA senior analyst Mohamed al-Shanawi. What I would say is that uh, I believe that the Egyptian government, President uh, Fatah al-Sisi, they all have realized that time has come to open up and ease the situation when it comes to the political and civil rights. For the last couple of years, the government was under threat, terrorist attacks, violence here and there. And they also have this priority of trying to make economic and financial reforms, development. So human rights files and political rights was not a priority at that time. But since the government and the presidency have launched the national strategy for human rights, means that they have admit that they do have a problem and that they would like to deal with. And this is actually what we all felt, that there is hope, there is a chance. So we all, those who are really concerned of all these rights, different institutions, we are all pushing to restore, again, the political life and civil rights back again and to look uh, forward of what can be done. Especially that most of our partners and friends in Europe and states, they have been always sending messages through the Congress, through their parliaments, government, and also international human rights organization. They were sending messages that enough is enough, time has come that Egypt has to give attention to all these violations, abuses happening from time to time. So I believe that what we are witnessing nowadays, it looks promising. It looks like that they do have a will to make life better to Egyptians and also to give a message to our partners abroad that Egypt is committed to all fundamental rights and to all our commitment and international agreements.
There have been partial release of those detained pending trial in addition to those convicted of activities related to exercising their political and civilian rights, free speech and protest rights. Do you expect more of the same? And when do you think this file will be closed for good? Actually, there have been releases, not only recently, during, let's say, the last year. I personally, together with some colleagues of mine in the National Council of Human Rights, we have been uh, witnessing uh, a lot of releases of those youngsters, youth, who have been detained because they have been joining protests here or writing in a Facebook or uh, tweets. or uh, There have been a lot of releases, but most of those youngsters and activists, maybe they are not knowing, they are not famous, but there have been a lot happening. And recently, there have been releases for uh, also another group, which have happened uh, almost 10 days ago. And I expect also more to come within the coming week or two, whether those who are in pre-trial detention or those who have been convicted and they got sentenced and they might receive a presidential pardon. Of course, that will take a little bit of time because there is a few numbers. No one knows exactly how many, but there is cases which still there, but we are working on this. As I said, it might take some time, but at least there is a process, there is a progress, and it looks so far promising. So that means that we will see more and more releases on the coming months. That was Mohammed Anwar El Sadat, president of Reform and Development Liberal Party and a member of the National Council for Human Rights in Egypt, speaking with VOA's Mohammed El Shinawi. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Joe Gill, thanks for tuning in and choosing The Voice of America. The Basketball Africa League is back. Voice of America joins forces with Africa's Premier Men's Basketball League to bring you the second season of the BAL. It is game on March 5th, 2022. 38 games, 12 teams leaving it all on the court in Senegal, Egypt and Rwanda to determine the 2022 season champion. Tune in to VOA 24-7, FMs, and to our radio and TV affiliates for some action. Pre-game, play-by-play, post-game, daily highlights, delivered by our finest commentators. Basketball Africa League 2022 on Voice of America. May the best team win. Hello, this is Heather.
Sarah Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African Beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music. From bobo music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, afrobeat to ndombolo and makosa to kwaito. The African Beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 0905 and 2005 UTC.